0: You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to Episode 738 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I'm your host, Brad Rowland. Coming to you live on a Thursday evening, and the podcast today will be part two of a a five-part series that I am doing with Ben Ladner of Sports Illustrated, sort of reviewing the Hawks roster. Part one dropped last week, talking about three of the big men, including Clint Capella, Dwayne Demon, Scalabissier. And on today's pod, we will be getting into Bruno Fernando, Damian Jones, and John Collins. But before we get to uh, my conversation with Ben, I want to tell you about one of the ultimate life hacks. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more when you don't have free time. You can't read or work on personal development, but there's an incredible app that solves that problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser, and it takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and contests them down in just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them. Successful people like business leaders are well known for reading a lot of books, and Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly, so you can start by using, using using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break, or even while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now as a massive growing library from self-help business, health and history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller list, as well as the classic nonfiction titles that you've always meant to read, but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA to try it free for seven days and save 25% off a new subscription. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T Blinkist.com NBA to start a seven-day free trial. From there, you'll also save 25% off your purchase, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com NBA. That's Blinkist.com NBA. And without further delay, here is my conversation with Ben Ladner, and uh, if nothing else, please enjoy this pod, please subscribe, and uh, we'll see you guys on the other side. Ben, thank you for coming back to the podcast for part two of five. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm doing great. Happy to be here and uh, look at this this second half of the Hawks big man rotation.
0: Yeah, we're talking about three guys today. Uh, we lose to this on the, on part one. By the way, if you do not listen to part one, go back and listen to it. It was uh, good times. It's all still relevant information because nothing has changed in the basketball world in the last week or so. Uh, but today's pod, Damian Jones, Bruno Fernando, and John Collins, of course, is the centerpiece of the podcast. We'll save John for the end to keep everybody listening, hopefully, until the end. Um, but... Yeah, let's go to Damian Jones. Before we get to Damian specifically, uh, I will say this, and I think we both alluded to this on the last podcast as well, it's a good reminder of just how bad some of the center minutes were this uh, this year for the Hawks, going back in the, um, if the season does in fact continue, then maybe not um, quite that bad, but in the first 67 games, the center minutes were pretty brutal, aside from a few Alex Lund minutes, who we're not going to talk about, obviously, he's not still on the team. And then uh, occasionally some Dwayne Dwayne Devin minutes later on and some John Collins. But uh, Damian and Bruno spent a lot of time on the floor together. Uh, Maybe not together, but a lot of time on the floor between the two of them this season. And uh, overall, the results were not great.
1: They were not. And uh, John Hollinger, local uh, Atlanta reporter for The Athletic, uh, referred to the the Hawks' centers as the worst positional group in the entire NBA. And I think that's that's true. I'd be hard-pressed to find another positional unit on any team that was that was less productive and less efficient and and less established than the Hawks' centers were this season. And like we said last podcast, you know, there were moments when Alex Len was injured before they traded for Deadman, before they traded I and mean, obviously Capella didn't even play. So that trade hardly matters in this, but I mean there were there were moments before John Collins came back from his suspension where there was some overlap between all those factors and it was it was Damian Jones and Bruno Fernando holding down every center minute. And it was it was not pretty and some somehow I'm surprised they didn't they didn't come out of that more beat up than they were you know they were surprisingly competitive in in some of those games despite the who was playing center for them and uh like you mentioned, it was Vince Carter sometimes just having a lot of small ball <laughs> minutes and it it got really really bleak and and um you know maybe maybe that's a credit to Lloyd Pierce you know not losing by forty in all of those games
0: yeah um I mean combined between the two of them between Damian and bruno um those guys played a combined 1,600 minutes on the dot. And uh, for for reference, that is more minutes than Cam Reddish played this season, if you combined Damian Jones and Bruno Fernando. Um, in the 67 games, the two of those guys combined to average about 24 minutes a game. If you spread those out, 1,600 minutes over 67 games, about 24 minutes a game. So... Half of the minutes essentially this season for the Hawks were occupied by uh, at least one of the uh, Damian Jones Bruno Fernando combo at center, and that is uh, not what you want probably. Uh, and you know it, it's worth pointing out that Bruno was a rookie, so I'm not going to pile on him too much, but he was a rookie. But you know Damian Jones was kind of a rookie. As we start talking about Damian a little bit more, uh, <laughs> to give Damian the benefit of the doubt a little bit here, he played more minutes this season than he had in his entire career to this point. In fact, 60% 60 of his career minutes were this season, and it was year four for him. So, as much as Damian Jones was a fourth-year player, he was kind of a rookie in some respects. Um, That's the last time that I will give him too much much of a doubt here. But um, first, on the positive side, this this would be a shorter part of the podcast, I would imagine, but Damian is is and was a very, very good pick-and-roll finisher slash dive man. That is his... That is his claim to fame. That is the one thing that he is good at on an NBA basketball court, honestly. Um, but I wanted to at least point that out at the top that he does have a legitimate skill, and uh, the offense was pretty good when he played. As a result of that, he has pretty he's pretty good gravity. He's a good finisher. All the numbers would tell you that he's very efficient on the very efficient around the rim. That's kind of all he does offensively. But it is very uh, worth pointing out that he actually is pretty adept at that.
1: He is, and and like you said, that's kind of the the extent of his of his capabilities on either end of the floor you know he not a whole lot of passing not a whole lot of of instincts um and and even the athleticism I, i've said this before but like as explosive as he is going up to the rim and finishing and he can get up for some huge dunks and and absolutely jump out of the gym but he, he kind of needs time to load up and you know get that runway going downhill and sort of set his feet get his steps right and explode off of two feet he he's not really a, a quick change of direction kind of guy uh he doesn't have a great second jump I don't think the reaction time is not always there and so while it it looks and and feels sometimes like oh you see him and, and you see him dunk and just his his body type and all that and his size he's this athletic big man you think he should be able to kind of assert himself athletically more often on the court but you just didn't really see that this season with the exception of those those big time dunks which like you said that's a legit NBA skill for him. And he's really good at that. It's just, he doesn't really apply his athleticism to the game outside of that. And I think that's where he really hurt the Hawks this year, especially on defense where he just, he didn't have the quickness. He didn't have the physicality. He didn't have the positioning, the balance that whatever trait you want to identify, he just, he didn't really have it. And, and I feel bad saying that because Damien's a nice guy and he's, I think he's good with the media when you talk to him. And I, you know, I hate to just pile on to guys in general, but you know, when the guy's not an NBA rotation player, he's just not an NBA rotation player. And I think the the Hawks found that out this year. And, um, you know, I, I wrote at the beginning of the year, like, if he doesn't have a solid season, he, this this could be his last year in the NBA. And and maybe he played well enough to get a, a flyer from some team in, in free agency. He'll be a free agent this summer, I believe. Um, but, you know, I don't think he's going to be back with the Hawks. But I could see some team maybe taking a flyer. But I could also just see him, you know— Maybe going overseas or a G League or or some something along that route. I don't think he's like a guaranteed, you know, on an NBA roster next season. So it's you know it's a shame, but I just think he he, he wasn't. I mean, you saw it on the court this year. It's just uh, he it wasn't quite there most of the time.
0: Yeah, to your point about this summer uh, or maybe maybe fall, depending on when free agency actually hits. Um his qualifying offer would be almost $3.5 million, which the Hawks are just not going to offer, and nor, nor should they. So he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. Um, it wouldn't blow me away, as a former first-round pick with legitimate athleticism, if he were to get a minimum contract for somebody for next year. He's not going to get a long-term commitment by any means, but it wouldn't stun me if he got signed to a minimum somewhere, but... It would, it would also not sum me to your point if he was not in the league to start next season, maybe G League, maybe somewhere else. Um, it's kind of finicky because he has so little experience that if you saw something on tape and obviously the pick and roll finishing would be the number one thing that you would say, maybe a team would see some intrigue in a guy who has some pedigree. And some athleticism and some size, they would like uh, to maybe take a flyer on him. Um, you know, for for what it's worth, the other thing that he does pretty well, um, I would say two more things that he does at least semi well is is offensive rebounding. He has pretty good numbers in offensive rebounding, and he also was decent enough in terms of just pure block shots. Uh, he, he does block some shots. He fouls at a crazy amount, which is probably why he's blocked some shots because he's pretty aggressive, probably too too much so. But if you could somehow channel the blocks and not the fouls, which is very difficult to do for almost anyone. Maybe you can find something there. But defensively, uh, it's not worth piling on too much here, but the, the the Hawks were at their worst defensively with him on the court this season. They had about 117 defensive rating. That is absolutely terrible. And, uh, you know, we can, we can go on and on. Defensive rebounding, it was very bad for him as well. That's probably um, even more. If you want to find one individual weakness on it for, of his defensively, it's probably awareness. But b- beyond that, the defensive rebounding just kind of went to pieces. A lot of those minutes where uh, fans were justifiably frustrated by the Hawks' inability to grab rebounds um, was, with, was with Damian on the court. He just did not have that pr- ability as a full-time starting center to do that. So yeah, just a lot of weaknesses. And uh, I think he probably will not be around next year in Atlanta if he, if he's gonna, if he's gonna be in the league somewhere that wouldn't surprise me but it's gonna be for the minimum I would imagine
1: yeah and it's kind of funny he he was one of the better offensive rebounding bigs in the league this year yeah. and one of the worst defensive rebounding bigs and I think part of that is because you know on 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 defense like you, you kind of you have to track your guy you have to box him out you're, you're kind of you're already in position to get the the rebound so you don't really have the element of surprise of like sneaking up and you're kind of weaseling your way into the paint to to grab an offensive rebound if someone doesn't box you out, um, whereas on defense, you know, you're kind of prone to that happening to you. And I think he was particularly it's you know, it's almost like he he made everyone look like Damian Jones on the offensive glass when he was trying to get a defensive rebound, um, which is not great, you know, given like we said, he he's a pretty solid offensive rebounder so. Uh, yeah, it's just they could never quite get him to channel that that rebounding on to the other end of the floor Which I would argue that defensive rebounding is more important than offensive rebounding So yes. even if you're bringing that that skill to the table, you know If you can't do it on the other end of the floor How valuable is it really and and you know that that gets into kind of a separate discussion about Those two things are almost different skills in a lot of ways defensive and offensive rebounding. They serve very different functions um, But he was he was really only good at one half of that of that coin and so I, I think you know, in the aggregate, the, the half he was not good at was more costly than the half he was good at was beneficial, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it definitely does. And, uh, you know, I, I will I will root for Damien. I think he like you said before, I think he's a good guy and I hope it works out for him somewhere. Uh, but he'll be 25 in June. He isn't super young anymore, despite the lack of uh, playing time and seasoning. So uh, we'll see it. We'll see where he lands. Um, unless you have final thoughts on Damien, we could probably move on to Bruno. Unless you have uh, something else that you want to share, Ben.
1: I do not. I uh, yeah. I, I think I've said about all I can.
0: Same. All right. We'll go to Bruno Fernando. Um. Bruno is it is very interesting. Obviously, he had the injuries. He had the uh, the tragedy in his family that cost him some time as well, and uh, that's unfortunate. And um, Bruno, it was interesting. He he is a rookie. I think at times um, he was effective in some ways. I also think at times it was very clear that he was overmatched and probably shouldn't be playing the minutes he was given. Um. When compared to Damien, I, I would still argue that Bruno was probably more effective on the whole, but maybe not by much if that tells you anything about the way that Fernando played. But obviously, the Hawks saw something in him, whereas the Damian Jones trade for Mario Spellman was almost certainly just about getting Spellman off and maybe getting that pick in the future. The Hawks clearly targeted Bruno Fernando. They traded they traded up in the first round. They traded, they traded some real asset to get him with an early second-round pick. Um, and, you know, the returns were up and down to be sure. We can go through uh, specific areas, but you know, offensively, there were some flashes, despite the uh, poor overall efficiency, and then defensively um, you could at least see what the Hawks saw on him. If you watched him in college, and I, I watched him a ton in college, you could definitely see the pieces that were there, and some people had him as a first-round pick, and uh, I could sort of see that as well, but um, what was your overall impression of Bruno this year that we
1: can sort of dive in from there? Yeah, my sort of overarching takeaway was that it's clear. it was clear to me, at least, that he has some he has some instincts, he has some intelligence. You can see him sort of thinking and trying to make the right play. Like I thought he he did a lot of really smart things in terms of like just DHOs and like flipping the angle of his screen and like using using his body to sort of create these little advantages. I th- I thought he in a lot of ways he he thought the game well. It was just clear that the game was too fast for him. And so as much as he had the right idea most of the time, he just he wasn't at a point and and most rookies aren't he just wasn't at a point where he could kind of process things quickly enough to make the play that that he was trying to make so he he would see things but maybe a beat too late or or he would see them you know and it just wouldn't be there the way he expected it to or or the game was just moving you know at a different speed than what he was used to so that was kind of there was enough there for me to think like okay he could be a you know kind of a solid smart sort of backup center uh, maybe maybe a starter if he if he kind of maxes out his potential I could see him being sort of that you know ball mover screen setter dive man kind of dirty work type of big man Um, you know I went to Indiana so I saw him a little bit when he was at Maryland in the Big Ten and you know I thought I thought he was a little overrated defensively Um, he, he made I think he made the first team all defense in, in the Big Ten last season uh, when he played in the same conference as John Teske which is crazy and I'm sure you as a Michigan guy oh yes um Know, know how how incorrect that selection was but at any rate he, he was you know, he's a solid defender and and like you said the instincts you can see some of the pieces there that that would lead you to believe he could be a solid defender so overall I could see him being about average on both ends of the floor at some point in his career he just he wasn't there this year and and it was tough because there were times where he just didn't have the opportunity to get on the floor There were times where he would get on the floor and he'd look okay, And then the next game, he just looked awful and you couldn't play him. And and it was really, really up and down, which I think is typical of most rookies. We saw that even with DeAndre Hunter to a a kind of lesser degree that the lows weren't quite as low. Um, But but yeah, I'm I'm weirdly encouraged by Bruno. And I know a lot of people are not. I know a lot of people don't really see it with him. But I actually am, am higher on him now than I was at the start of the season. I think what I saw in the regular season actually encouraged me about his future whereas i know for some people maybe they are feeling a little bit more negative but but i actually liked overall you know just the the flashes that i saw i think there was enough there to make you believe in this guy going forward
0: yeah i think in general expectations for rookies are too high that's not a breaking news statement for me i say that all the time but that was that's especially true for like second rounders and uh also for bigs i think Aside from the you know really 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 special big men that go in the lottery for a reason, most of the time it takes a little bit longer for pure centers, especially in today's NBA. So I won't say that I'm more encouraged by Bruno than I was a year ago at this time, or maybe uh, you know before before season started anyway. But I'm not necessarily more discouraged either. I think he, he's about what I thought about where I thought he would be. There are certain areas where you could say he's you know higher or lower than you thought at this point in time. Like for instance. I think he's going to be a good rebounder. I think offensive rebounding, he was clearly very, very good this year already. That's a little, it's not a huge thing, but it certainly matters. You can provide value in that way. I think he'll be fine on the defensive glass eventually. It's worth pointing out, he's not huge. Bruno is, uh, he's jacked by all means, but he's not a seven-footer. He's hes more like that 6'10". He's fairly long, but he's not this like massive Alex lenz size human being that can just like take up space. He's going to have to figure out a lot of the stuff that um, guys that... He's not necessarily super limited in size, but he's not huge either. So the margin for error is a little bit smaller. And as a rookie, he just didn't know where to be all the time. I think his energy level was okay for the most part. Um, you could see the flashes. There were some times where I think it, I think he almost forgot that he has to play a lot harder now than he did in college. Like, he was a very gifted college player. A very a, sort of a good... A, obviously, a good recruiter out of Maryland and um, was very, very good. But I think uh, sort of the engine stuff that... Takes guys a little bit of time sometimes when they kind of realize that they have to go a certain level all the time in the NBA and they didn't really have to do that before. But I don't know. There was pluses and biases, like you said. Offensively, we talked about that for a second. I mean, you could see the skill. Um, you saw that. At, you saw that at times at Maryland too. The dribble handoff stuff that he was asked to run in college. He finished around the rim pretty decently. He still shot pretty pretty efficiently um, from two-point range this season. With that said, he had a huge turnover rate, um, which is not hugely surprising either for a rookie, but uh, he definitely had some ball security issues, and, and the shooting has just not arrived yet. He was 5 of 37 from 3 this year. It's a very small sample size, but uh, it looked bad. They want him to shoot that. I think they probably still believe in it, but any notion that Bruno was going to come in and be this ready-made shooter is out the window. And the free throw shooting was not very good either. So um, lots of highs and lows. You can see the the passing flashes, but for now, he was more of a negative. He had almost as many turnovers as assists, for instance, offensively this season. Um, I think, this is just me talking, maybe you disagree, but I, I think ultimately it would be better for him if he was better on defense than offense. I don't really see a whole lot of offensive ceiling with Bruno. He does have some tools that you like. But uh, for the most part, center is a is a defense first position unless you're elite, and I, I don't see him being elite on offense. So he better he better uh, sort of focus on cleaning up the defense because that's probably more important for him moving forward.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, you mentioned the passing. I I was actually kind of surprised, like all, almost blown away when I first saw it in the preseason. Even with his pass, like he can make some some nice kickout passes, even off the dribble. You know, little shovel passes. I think he could get to the point where he's you know he can make plays out of the short role. He's he's not going to be elite at that, I don't think, but I think he could be a decent you know sort of reader of the floor coming downhill and spraying to corners and finding shooters and even like big to big passing if there's a guy in the dunker spot, you know, throwing that lob. Like he he could be, I think, an above average passer for his position. I'm not sure that he's ever going to be an above average shooter, but I, I like you said they do want him taking that shot. It it looks okay. I don't think there's anything super wrong Mechanically with his jump shot, he kind of flicks his wrist out a little bit, which is a little weird, and the the ball doesn't always come off, uh, you know, his 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 index finger and middle finger like you you would teach it. But it's it's repeatable, you know, it's it's the same shot every time. It goes in in warmups for whatever that's worth. Uh, although most guys in the NBA hit their shots in warmups, uh, <laughs> I think he can get like you know below average, maybe average for a center. Yeah, in that in that regard. But I again, he's not going to be forty percent like Brook Lopez last season type of floor spacer they
0: want him to shoot though I mean that's the thing that I think people don't understand like for instance with Damian Jones they never really pushed that they kind of knew he wasn't going to shoot I think I think with Clint Capella we're going to see that they're not going to make him shoot but with Bruno at least for now the team does want him to shoot when he's open from three-point range now is it going to go in a lot Maybe not right away, but eventually they definitely want him to be able to do that. And it's not a small thing. If you if you could become a shooter that the teams have to at least think about guarding, that does help you open up the offense. And they do believe that he could do that eventually.
1: Yeah. And for the defensive end, I think, he, you know, like you said, he's going to have to be really good on that end or at least better on that end than he is on offense to, to provide positive value. Uh, I think that's probably true. I could see him being a pretty good verticality guy because he, he's not the longest guy in the world. Uh, but I, I think we saw times where he you could see him making the rotation. You could see him anticipating drives. There were certainly times where he did not do that and just kind of stood still as as guys drove by him to the rim. And it was his responsibility and he missed it. But there were there were times as well where he, you know, he'd be in the right spot. he'd he'd get there on time. And when he could really key in on the play and see it coming, I thought he made a a lot of decent reads. And the other thing is is that he's so, like you said, he's jacked. So he, he has such a strong chest. If he can get up and get his hands up and kind of meet the guy in the air, he's not going to get pushed back by very many people. You know, in that you know that that body to body contact in midair because he's so strong, he can kind of hold his ground as a rim protector, almost the Yusuf Nurkic type of rim protection, where he's not blocking a ton of shots, he's not the longest guy in the world, he's not the most athletic, but he's just so burly and strong. And, and if he can get to the the intelligence level that Nurkic has, you know, he could be that type of rim protector where he's just so. Physically sturdy that it's hard to really get around him and through him at the rim and you know He's he's almost at that point physically where he's just really really strong if, if he can kind of you know Add to that base he obviously I think he's gonna be a good post defender as well And while that's not a key element for a big man anymore I think it's still important to be able to have a guy who can you, know, you can throw on kind of the, the The old school type of bigs in the league. He wasn't there this past season he was still a little a little thin when you compare him to like Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic and those types of guys. But eventually I think he can get to the point where he's physical enough to really be your, your go-to post-defender, which in certain matchups could be pretty valuable.
0: Yeah, and I mean, as we look ahead a little bit, I don't want to like talk about this too too much because, you know, he's still a young player and all that stuff. But next season, he, you know, he obviously is not as good at basketball right now as Clint Capella or Dwayne Edmund. So you're talking about a guy who Yes, they made an investment in him. They they traded up to get him. But he also on the depth chart right now, even a very limited depth chart that has no other guys coming in, which they're gonna have to bring in some other bodies in the front court, he probably isn't gonna be in line for a massive role barring injury or something like that in his second season. Now he's under contract for two more years. He has a, he's he signed a three year deal coming out of um, coming out of college, and he's obviously pretty cheap during that period. and Then they'll have his rights after that, uh, at least uh, match rights and restricted free agency. But I mean, my, I guess my question would be, uh, you know, it's uh, on paper it should be a pretty big year for Bruno in the fact that you know you learn a lot about a guy, especially a big in year two, and like how much they're sort of getting it, how much they're how much they're picking up the game, how much they're uh, sort of having things slow down for them, and uh, sort of feeling and being able to make reads and all that stuff. But on the flip side, he might actually play less. I mean, it's it's at least possible if you were to pencil in health, which you, def- you definitely cannot do with these two guys, but if you, if you were to assume health for Capella and Deadman, plus maybe another body or two in free agency that's added to the roster, Bruno doesn't really have an every-night role unless they just want him to, and they might. But considering what they've been saying now publicly about wanting to make the playoffs next year, maybe they want to err on the side of playing their better players more minutes and maybe uh, not focusing on, on development quite as much. So he's in kind of a weird spot. I mean, it's it's too early to really know, but there's at least a chance that he's not like this massive part of the team next year.
1: Yeah. And those lineups with John Collins at center were, were pretty good this year comparatively, you know, so I think they're they're going to want to do that as, as much as they can as well. And so yeah. now that's three centers that, that basically are better options than Bruno. And I, I could see him being like a you know kind of late middle of the second quarter type of guy you know play three or four minutes in each half maybe in second and third quarters and that's kind of it for him but even then like it's it's hard when you really map out the rotation and say okay here's how much Capella's gonna play here's how much Dedman's gonna play here's how much you're gonna play Collins at center like it it gets pretty thin and you get to a point too where it's it's really not worth playing a guy five minutes a game you know you don't really see anyone play five six minutes a game regularly unless it's just like they played 20 minutes one game and then they played garbage time and a couple others, you know? So like it, it's, uh, he's either going to play like 10, 12 minutes a game or he's not going to play it. Cause it's, it's just hard for guys and hard for coaches to, to really, you know, play people less than that. kind of in between that range. So I, I think he's, he's insurance for sure. And like you said, there's going to be injury concerns. You, I think you've mentioned before Capella could just sit out back to backs or they could play it safe with him. Um, there's always the risk of, of a recurring injury with, with the type of, heel injury that he had.
0: And Deadman too. Uh, Dedman's Devin, ever been the most right. durable guy in the world. So uh, there'll, there'll be some time for him. But, I mean, in my head, opening night 21, 20, uh, sorry 2021 next season or whatever, however you want to say that, opening night, if everybody's healthy, Bruno probably gets zero minutes. I mean, in yeah, my mind. If, I think so. If you're trying to build a, a rotation to win that game, he probably is assigned zero minutes unless there's foul trouble or something else. So I don't know. We'll see what happens there. I, I still think that he can be a very useful player in the NBA. Um... I think it's unlikely that he becomes a starting center that you want to have starting on your team in a couple of years, but it's not impossible by any means. He is a talented guy. There's a reason why he was where he was on most draft boards, like he is a late first, early second round pick. But um yeah, it'll be interesting to see what how sort of they treat him also, because you know, it's not like he has huge trade value, but I mean Dwayne Debman isn't gonna be a long isn't necessarily gonna be a long-term piece for you, but um Bruno is kind of that guy in the middle where you have this clear you know, group of six core guys. You're five young guys in Capella, and Bruno is like in his own category because he's not a core piece, but he's also not not a veteran. So he's the only young guy on the team right now, at least until the draft arrives, that is in this limbo where he is cheap, he's under contract, but he also is sort of not in that top group. So I don't know. I don't, I'm not. Even, I'm not even sure how to treat him. But uh, I think we just gotta we, we did a pretty good job of talking around where things are. But you know. I still believe in Bruno to some extent, just uh, more as a rotation
1: player than anything else. I'm, I'm with you. I, I believe in his, you know, ability to be a solid backup center. And you know, if he really reaches the limits of his potential, maybe more than that. I think he's another reason why, you, you know, why you believe that Scalabissier and and uh, Damian Jones are probably not going to be on this team next year, just because at a certain point, like you, you just you can't carry that many centers, especially if you yeah. want to make the playoffs. When you have the the type of wing needs that the Hawks do when you still need a backup point guard. Like it's, there's just no way that, to me that they keep four centers like true centers on the team next year. And and I'm counting LeBissier as, as kind of, and Jones as, as true centers here. um, But yeah, it's, it's to me, at least, at least the choice is clear. If you're, if you have to prioritize one of those three guys, you know, I could see the appeal of Scal, but, but to me it's, it's uh you know, Bruno probably has the most, the most uh, realistic, realistic, I guess median upside of those three.
0: Yeah, I think I think as a sidebar, if they could get Scow for the minimum, I, I wouldn't hate that. He is a little bit different, and he, I think he's probably different enough from Bruno and Capella. Where and he's young enough and has that pedigree. Where if you could get him to sign for the minimum, like I see, I see some appeal on that. I, I think Damian coming back would be uh, legitimately stunning to me. So we'll <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, all right, Ben. Well, we we're, we're going to leave uh, the two backup type centers here for now and we'll go to a quick break real quickly uh first of all let me tell you guys to check out Blinkist which I talked about earlier in the podcast but uh after this quick break we'll come back talk about all uh, all the things that John Collins offers so hold on tight all right Ben we're back and uh John Collins is a lot better at basketball than Bruno Fernando and Damian Jones I think we will have uh, no argument about that
1: um I'm a start- someone will find a way someone will argue uh someone will there's argue, always someone there's, out there, there always is someone that's true
0: uh yeah, maybe it's the the Bruno Truthers that thought Bruno was going to be a lottery pick last last year. I heard, I heard from a lot of those people. Uh, that the one, Bruno
1: the one... Truthers. I have not encountered the Bruno. You weren you yet. weren't around
0: quite as much at the draft last year. Uh, I will tell you, there was a handful of Hawks fans that um, would have and and did advocate for Bruno to be uh, selected with a lottery with, with the lottery pick that the Hawks had last year. That that happened in my mentions and in other places. So anyway. certainly an interesting take. Yeah, it was interesting. Um. I'm going to open up the John Collins discussion by just reading some numbers to you. I, I tweeted these numbers earlier today, but uh, this kind of just sets the tone for how good John Collins was on offense when he played this year. Uh, in, in the final 27 games of the season to this point, obviously the season's not over necessarily, but if, in case it is in the last 27 games, John Collins averaged 24 points and 10.4 rebounds, which is obviously fantastic. But beyond that, he shot 63% from the floor 44% from three and 82% from the free throw line during that stretch. That is 70% true shooting on real usage and real volume. Uh, th- those numbers are out of a video game because no one, no one does that on real volume and producing at that level over the kind of, over the kind of minutes that he does. And obviously the shooting percentages are going to drop from that point. Cause it's kind of impossible to keep those up, but all that to say, there's a reason why John Collins' numbers are what they are for the full season. It's because he was really, really good on offense. Uh, th- the suspension is the thing that I'm sure will come up on this podcast. But in terms of what he was actually able to do on the floor, John was uh, fairly ridiculous offensively this year.
1: He really was, and and like, it's kind of it's kind of baffling, like how little attention he got in some ways. Like I feel like, I don't know, maybe maybe I, maybe I just am, am listening to the wrong things, but I feel like he he no, kind you're right. of. <laughs> a lot of people are kind of slow to come around on on kind of what he did this year, and and maybe maybe they just need more evidence, and and that's perfectly fair. Like you said, those numbers are going to regress, and and he's probably not going to be quite that level of player the rest of his career. Um, but there was nothing to me that I saw that was maybe maybe the three point shooting you'd say could could regress yeah. more than than usual. But like I, I think it was fairly sustainable what he was doing, and and I I, st- I think a lot of the discourse around him still is. Is sort of, oh, well, you know, he's he's kind of limited, low usage, yada, yada, yada. And I think I don't know. I don't know what my my point is here, but it just uh, it felt like he was kind of flying under the radar as he did this, which is crazy um, because of, like you said, how how crazy the production was. I, I wrote about him last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago. I don't know how how the days pass these days, um, but he was one of five players in the entire NBA this season to score more than 20 points per game and yet more than 10 rebounds per game. And the other four were Jokic, Giannis, Towns, and Joel Embiid. And Collins was the fifth. And what's really interesting to me about that list is A, just that he's in really elite company uh, and he's, he's putting up some pretty impressive per-game numbers. And granted, you know, points and rebounds per game are not the end-all be-all for a big guy. But the thing that stuck out is those other four guys are kind of their team's primary offensive engine. And Collins is not. Collins kind of... He kind of floats around the game. He's never really the the focal point. He's never really the main, uh, the, the intended target of a play. But he always kind of finds a way to be involved. He always finds a way to be around the rim, whether it's a putback, whether it's getting it behind the defense and and launching from the dunker spot to, to finish plays, whether it's being in the pick and roll with Trey Young, whether it's popping for three. he's He's just kind of always around. And I think that's an underrated skill in the NBA, just the ability to kind of find your shot, to get open and stay open and and create shots without the ball i guess create openings for yourself without the ball and then be able to finish them as efficiently as he does that's a really really valuable skill i I think the question is going to be how valuable is it and how replaceable is it because you know the the big story around collins for the last few months or so since they they traded for capella was how is he going to fit with clint capella what's his future on this team he's obviously extension eligible Uh, Coming up in this offseason, the Hawks are going to have to make a decision of how much to pay him. If he hits restricted free agency, I'm sure they're going to have a limit at which, you know, if he's offered something more than this amount of money, they they might let him walk. Maybe he turns into a max player over the course of the next year. It's certainly possible. I don't know that I would bet on it, but what he does is is really, really rare. And I I think the question is because he's the only guy on that list that I read that isn't that offensive focal point. Maybe there's a feeling like, okay, yes, this is really impressive. Yes, this is really, really good. Um, but but could we find this somewhere else, maybe 90% of this at 50% of the cost, and then allocate that other 50% to some other resources? I'm not sure. I don't mean to to kind of slide this into a, a, a down note here, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding Collins. And I think honestly, the way he played over the end of the season only makes, you know, only makes it a more difficult decision. It only it only creates more uncertainty because you know, it's it's there's a case that maybe he isn't a long term part of this team. But on the other hand, you look at what he does, what he did in the last few months, the way he does it. And that player is pretty damn valuable to an NBA yeah. team and and maybe one worth building around. And And I think if the defense comes around and especially if the three point shooting sustains that that kind of changes the discussion a little bit. It's just those two elements. How do they carry forward into the next year? That that's going to be a huge question he's going to have to answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. Going back to, like, why he doesn't get recognized in the way he did, I think it's almost threefold on that. Uh, number one, he wasn't a huge name coming into the NBA. Like, he played at Wake Forest on a not-great college team. Um, he was extremely productive and efficient in college, but wasn't a lottery guy. He obviously, he fell to 19, and even before the draft, was not really supposed to go much higher than, like, 15th. So, that's one thing. The second thing, being that he plays for the Atlanta, for the Atlanta Hawks, um, and... I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but this is a team that does not get noticed nationally, and when they do, it's probably for Trey Young. And I think with you know Trey's gotten, and rightfully so, the majority of the conversation nationally about the Hawks has been about Trey Young. And again, rightfully so, because Trey's been so good, and he's just a lot more famous. But I think, aside from the true diehard folks people don't pay that close attention to the Hawks, just as a general rule. I've always known that, and I think it's almost more so now that they have not been good for the last couple of years, um, even playing in the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. And then number three is what you just said about the fact that all these gaudy numbers, he is not the primary guy. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Number On the on the pro side, it's extremely impressive that he's able to post those kind of numbers while also not being the primary guy. On the flip side, his job is a little bit easier because he is playing with Trey Young, number one, and just not having the same kind of pressure on him um, night night to night. But I mean, I would also argue that they needed him so badly this year. And I know you and I talked about this on, on, online and offline and during games, and along with Kevin Schnard and others. There were many nights where he, he needed the ball more, not less. They needed to give him get him more involved with the, with the, with the offense because he was so good and such, and he was kind of the only guy on the team that could do what he could do. But I don't know. It's it's very interesting to me. I think full stop, I'll be, I'll be interested to see what, what you say to this, but um, I know in our, our Peace group, Slot Channel, this has been coming up. I think full stop, he is one of the best offensive big men in the league right now.
1: I think so. I the the I mentioned that article I wrote earlier. The headline was basically John Collins is one of the most versatile offensive weapons in the NBA. That was kind of the premise of the, I mean, the piece. So I, I agree with you. He, he can do kind of everything i mean maybe you could argue he doesn't have the post game but for a player like him like do you really want him backing down no you you do not want the post game (laughs) right so he does everything else so efficiently and like i said it's it's in so many ways it's shooting the three it's in transition it's getting behind the defense in the half court and the pick and roll just all over the place they use him as kind of a a hub in in dho's at the top of the key where he'll kind of pivot from one side of the floor to the other Uh, and then that allows him to get you know rolling downhill after he gives the handoff. I agree with you. I, I think he's one of the the best offensive bigs in the league, and obviously the key ter- the the key word there is offensive because the you know the the defense is is I don't think he's terrible on that end of the floor. I think he's been Im- improved, um, but he's not you know he's not the defensive anchor type quite yet. I think I think there's a tendency to overlook that sometimes because he's not the the hub, and maybe there's a feeling that okay, he, he, he's putting up these numbers, but is he an empty stats on a bad team type of guy? And that question is, has yet to be answered because he hasn't played on a good team Yeah, yet. he, he um, hasn't. He hasn't played on a good team.
0: I, I will point out that, you know, I think we talked about this early, even earlier, like a few minutes ago, but Collins' numbers were obviously the best they've ever been this year in terms of efficiency, but this is not new. He's been efficient at every level he's ever played at, including the NBA in the previous two, two seasons. I think people kind of didn't really realize how good his, his offensive numbers were last season. In year two, like he was still for the full season, um, had a 63 percent true shooting. He actually had a higher assist rate in year two than he did in year three. Like he wasn't as good overall because of the defense mostly, and also just he didn't have quite the same impact in some ways. But other than his three point shooting, making the jump in year three, he's you know he was already kind of that guy. He just uh more more blossomed this season, offensively. But I mean if you buy the shooting and and i do not 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 at 44% from 3 but if if you buy him as a high 33 point shooter which i i do at this point given his given his um form and mechanics and how clean they are and how good it looks and how comfortable he looks and the results if you assume that is real and combine that with his you know what is undeniable pick-and-roll um, gravity and impact in the way that he's able to play around there. It's just sort of his preternatural ability to finish around the rim. Like, it's not just dunks either. This is someone who, it's not mid-range, but he's, like, really, really excellent at those, like, six-foot shots. He just has great touch around the rim, yeah, his second jump stuff. I mean, he has everything you want offensively. Other than maybe you might want him in an ideal world to be a little bit more of an individual creator, if you just have to. But he's 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 been doing a little bit more of that recently. I think that's the one thing when you compare him to you know the guys that you talked about earlier that he doesn't necessarily do. And part of that's because he's not asked to do it. Is just the one on one creation aspect and the passing, but he doesn't need to be able to do that to be an awesome offensive player. I mean, And we're going to talk about his defense in a second, but before we let the offense go, like, I just, I think it's almost, I, I know it's underrated nationally. It's almost underrated locally even at times, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, to just realize how good he has been offensively. And there is a lot of, there's definitely a, a, a discussion to be had about the value in a, you know, most of the time a power forward, a traditional power forward play finisher when compared to, other archetypes but just plugging it into what he has actually done on the court um and his even if you just say take the last two seasons it's 102 games this is a guy who has a 64 percent true shooting who's been incredibly he's basically about 20 and 10 guy on that efficiency level on 23 usage like you can't overlook how positive that impact is on offense and I, I know there's a bigger picture but just drilling down a little bit it's just been really really wicked
1: yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like Mr. Homer over here either, but I, I agree with you. I think it is, you know, it, it's it's amazing. I, I, I
0: think we're safe to not say that on this podcast because I, I I already get too much heat for not being a homer. So I think it's go. fine to be effusive every once in a while.
1: Yeah. it's it, Listen, <laughs> I won't be I won't be super positive on many Hawks players, but there are two that I will be, you know, fairly effusive about because they I think they they warrant it, at least on offense. Um, But to, to me, Collins is kind of he's sort of the best case scenario for his player archetype, right? Like, yeah. like to to all the bigs, if you're an assistant coach or a head coach or whoever, and you have a you know a big and athletic guy who who wants the ball and wants to post up and and you want him to buy into a different kind of role, you say, look at John Collins. Like if you buy into this and you really do it well, like you could be John Collins. I think he's kind of the the best case scenario for the the big man who doesn't need the ball but can still be really effective. Just because of the the different you know the, the range of ways in which he affects the game, and you know you mentioned the creation. I think I think there's a little bit of of creation to it, like individual. Not not he doesn't have the playmaking quite yet, but there's a little bit of self creation to his game and kind of the yeah. way that that Clay Thompson creates for himself, where it's not taking guys off the dribble, it's not using pick and roll, but it's off ball. It's it's moving without the ball. It's it's finding openings. Um, you know, just just sort of the the off ball movement, getting yourself open. So while he is being set up on a lot of his his finishes with a pass usually from trey young he's also kind of helping set that up for himself because of what he does before the pass comes to get himself in a position to score um so i think that that can sometimes be overlooked which is not to say that you are overlooking it but i think just in general like like that's that's an element that i think is underrated especially with bigs where like a lot of bigs job is to finish plays but if they can't get themselves in position to be involved in the play how are they going to finish it so i think you know, he and Dwight Powell are kind of the two guys that like have really excelled and and bought into that role. And there are others as well. Um, But I've, you know, there's, there's almost a a mental side of that too, where you kind of have to be okay with not being the guy you have to be okay with not having plays called for you. And, and, you know, there's been, I don't know if tension is the right word, but, but, you know, headlines about how Lloyd Pierce doesn't call plays for John Collins and Collins has sort of pushed back on that a little bit. And maybe seems like he wants more plays called, but, but to his credit, like, he really buys into the role that he has and he he makes the most out of what his role is in the offense and i think that's that's really impressive as well
0: yeah i mean everybody has an ego john's going to want a lot of money and he should like everybody wants more touches and all that stuff but uh, it never really affects him on the court which i always appreciate um i've always kind of lauded him playing really really hard all the time to the point where when they're getting blown out, I want him to get off the court because I fear that he's going to get injured because he plays so hard. And these kind of even 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 meaningless times, his his motor runs hot, and I always appreciate it about him going back to college. Like he he just plays hard. Now, we're get into the defense now because we have to do it at some point. Uh, first things first, he was so much better this season than he's ever been defensively. That has to be said. Um, the block rate was the highest it's ever been and more than double, by the way. Of It was kind of a running joke in year two that just Collins stopped blocking shots and getting steals uh, and it was really bothersome. Um, this year, the blocks were definitely back um, at, at a career high level. The steals were back to some degree as well and steals is never going to be his thing but he now, at least this season, was at least a at, the, at least a solid um, backside, weak side rip protector. Uh, 1.6 blocks per game uh, block rate of about four percent. Um, that's a very good data point. He was he was more he was more aware defensively this, se- this season than he's ever been, and I don't think that he was a huge negative defensively this year for the first time. Uh, I was critical of his defense coming out of college. I thought he was just terrible in college, and that's kind of if you watched him, that really, really wasn't up for debate. He was really bad, and then for most of his first two seasons, he was pretty bad. Um, but it's not number one. It's not it's not really effort based. It's, it's more that he didn't know where to be and what to do. And he's always got this, you know, it's not his fault by any means, but you're in this kind of tweener role always. And it's it's not a bad thing necessarily. Tweeners are kind of excelling in the NBA now that in a way that they never used to because of the way the game has changed. But when you're a tweener 4-5, it becomes hard to defend at times because either you're playing against guys who are smaller than you and he has some rough moments in space um, on his resume, or when you're the primary rent protector or you're the primary guy trying to defend a pick and roll that's a tough job for someone who is 6'9", and he's a great athlete, but he's also not 7 feet tall. So there's pluses and minuses. I just want to start out the conversation about his defense by saying that it was much, much better this year to the point where it wasn't this huge negative. But on the flip side, there is a discussion to be had about like what that looks like long term, particularly when Trey Young is your point guard. And um, I-, I think, by all accounts, the Hawks are treating John Collins, and I think probably rightfully so at this point, as a power forward that can also play center, not the other way around. He is a he is a starting power forward. He's going to play most of his minutes of power forward, and we'll see how that works from there.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think the, the defense is maybe the biggest area where I feel like the the broader, just general conversation about his defense was a little slow uh, on the uptake compared to reality. Like, I still yep. feel like the public opinion of his defense is is lower than what what I believe that it is. I, I right find now. myself and,
0: shaking my head when I read people just kind of like burying him on defense not right. not 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 in detail but just kind of like treating him as if he didn't improve and that's not what's happened he's gotten much better
1: yeah and and you can understand why right he yeah. missed 25 games the Hawks were terrible it's like <laughs> most people if you're not a beat writer you know you're not John Hollinger who lives in Atlanta um and and is kind of subjected to to watching a lot of Hawks games, um, you know most most national guys are probably not going to watch a ton of the Hawks, and I totally nope. understand that. So you would be forgiven if you if you are not privy to the the defensive improvements that John Collins has made this season, in part because he only played like forty games. So it's you know it's hard to to really be in in tune with that if you're not watching him every game. So I, I totally and, and get by, that.
0: by by the time he came back, the, the Hawks were basically out of it. Um, yeah. So that also contributes, and that goes back to what I was saying before about the Hawks even under ideal circumstances, there's this disconnect between national and local because the Hawks are the Hawks, and they're not a brand, and they're not on national TV, but then you throw in the fact that they were, um, I think, maybe the worst team in the league by by record when he came back from his suspension, and there was even less reason to watch the Hawks. So
1: Yes, yeah. 100%. So, so I, I say that to to acknowledge, like, I, I don't mean to just sort of uh, denigrate people who who no. are behind on, on Collins' defense, but I do agree. I, there are times where I, I sort of, I see him kind of just written off as like, oh, but you know he's a bad defender, so he can't play center and yada yada yada. He's in his canter
0: or something defensively. Right. And yeah, not.
1: and and especially when it pertains to his fit with Capella, because I think a lot of people you, you've seen where it's it's sort of being treated as fait accompli, like oh he can't fit with Capella because he's not good enough on defense or whatever it is, and and like he can't he can't be the the center because you're just going to get killed on defense, and maybe they won't be great on defense, but but I, I could see a scenario where he he turns into a perfectly fine defensive center. Uh, And I thought he was that for most of this season. Like you said, I thought his his reactions were a lot better. Uh, His timing was a lot better. I thought he did a great job, especially down the end of the season, maybe the last month or so, uh, using verticality at the rim. He had a number of nice plays where he just kind of get his, you know, stick his arms up, get his chest kind of into the guy, let the guy bounce off of him. You know, he's not the, the burliest guy in the world, but. You know he's strong enough, athletic enough that he can kind of be a deterrent there. Uh, you know the Hawks they they defended and prevented shots at the rim better with Collins on the floor, but it's still they still weren't great even with him on the floor. And no. that's that's partly a product of of the defensive talent that he had around him. You know they they weren't great containing the ball at the point of attack. That's generally going to be the case when Trey Young's on the team. But I do think some of that comes back to Collins, and that's where you see people being more down on his defense. I think there's good reason for that. You know he's he's not an elite rim protector and he probably won't ever be it's it's a question of can he be good enough to play 12 to 15 maybe 20 minutes in a pinch at center in a given game you know especially if they are in the the conversation where they can start talking about in a a playoff game like a high leverage situation you know can he be that guy for 15 to 20 minutes a game right now the answer is probably no but i I was encouraged this year encouraged me that maybe he can get to be that guy um because you 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 don't want to you know, if if you're in a situation where you're playing in a, a high leverage playoff game, you can't afford to have a lineup that's just going to get killed on defense. So you do need him to be sturdy enough, and and the question of can he be sturdy enough, I think was you know, is pointing in the direction, at least to me, of of being yes.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And the thing about I think I alluded to it a second ago, but um, where where I think he has to get better, and this is a crucial point for him. Is when he is the primary defender. I think he made huge strides as a you know weak side of a protector this season, and that's where he gets most of his blocks from. Um, and that's a big thing. His awareness has gotten much better in that area, and I think um, that's not a small development by any means. But um, you know, fast forward to a situation in the playoffs, and I know that's maybe a year or two away. But if you get into if you get into the playoffs, um, teams are going to put Trey Young and John Collins in pick and roll until they can't until they can't anymore. And most of the problem there is Trey Young, certainly. But Collins, if he has a weakness defensively, at least for me right now, is probably that same action. Um he's gonna he just has to figure out how to get better at being that primary guy in an action. And part of that is just the tools that he's not seven feet tall and he's not the most um, he's not the most comfortable guy sliding in space uh, on a switch and stuff like that, but I think it's it's in there. He's a good athlete. He's not he's not someone who is incapable physically of doing a lot of things defensively. Like the one thing he can't change is being is, is not being seven feet tall. But in terms of playing in space, I think just more reps. Uh, this is someone who was clearly a pure big his whole life coming up and was a, basically only played center almost as a rookie under Budenholzer. And then since then he's been playing more four, but you know, the four position, as we've talked about ad nauseum, I know on this podcast and other places is a weird position at this point in time. Cause you know, half the teams or more are playing us what used to be a small forward at, at power forward. And John Collins is a traditional power forward in the way that he is built and the way that he operates. So kind of that versatility of being able to guard, Someone like, I don't even, I'm trying to think of like a traditional, I don't even know, a, a bigger player if he's playing center, and then when he's playing alongside Capella or alongside Deadman, being asked to guard someone like Torian Prince, for instance. Like, Torian Prince was a small forward until he got to Brooklyn, basically basically played the four all season long in Brooklyn now, and Torian's got weaknesses too, but, you know, in in his life until the last year or so, John Collins was not asked to guard someone like Torian Prince. He was asked to guard someone like Jared Allen. So, it's just interesting to me and it's a tough it's a tough ask, but that's why you get paid the big bucks and John's got to figure out how to be better defensively and there's, there's already been a lot of growth there, but for him to be you know the the unquestioned max player, I think offensively we've already established that he's at that level, but defensively, he's never going to be Draymond, but he's going to have to be better than he is now for the Hawks to get where they want to go
1: yeah and even even this past season he was mostly an interior defender like you mentioned he's not really on the perimeter very often and and lloyd pierce said multiple times they want to keep him down the floor they want to keep him kind of back near the rim against pick and roll And, and sometimes they would blitz sometimes they would switch but i think mostly they're their game plan was to kind of keep him back and, and have him around the rim. Part of that was because he was playing so much center and they really had no other rim protection on the floor. So if you take him yeah. away from the basket, there's no one there to protect it. So they want to keep him around. I do. I do
0: want to see not, not to cut you off. I, I do want to see him play with like play the four with someone who is a good defender at the five. Now we saw that a little bit with, with Alex land and the numbers were actually tremendous. I actually meant to mention this in a second ago. So I'm, I'm going to say it now. It's a small sample size, It's only 14 games. But the Hawks, when they played Lynn and Collins together, had a defensive rating about 96, 97, and now it's a really small sample size, but Len was the only guy that Collins really played with for any length of time that I would call a good defensive center. Uh, deadman didn't really arrive until the end, of course, and he's pretty good as well, but um, there were so many minutes where you're playing Collins with Bruno or Collins without, with, with Damian Jones, and then you have the worst of both worlds. You have a guy in Collins who's playing um, at the four and asked to do a little bit more on the perimeter, and then you have a bad reprotecting center. I am very, very curious to see how that's going to look when he's playing with Capella, who's actually a good defensive center for a large period of time. And maybe it, maybe it won't make you know John will be, still be asked to do some other things on the perimeter but um that's the one thing that i actually i'm just desperate to see in a larger sample size is just what that looks like when he's playing with someone who who knows, who knows what they're, what they're doing at center cuz the sample size is just so small right now
1: yeah it's just tough when you have so much weight on your on your shoulder so much responsibility you're the only rim protector out there that i mean that can make a lot of guys look bad it's it's a testament to the the sort of elite defensive anchors that they can kind of prop up any defensive unit but you know, Collins, when you're when you're playing center with DeAndre Hunter at the four or like you said, playing the four with Bruno or Damian Jones at the five, it's just like if you're if you're not at the rim, no one is effectively. <laughs> and so that that can make things look pretty rough. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be curious, too, like if Hunter can develop into a a decent rim protecting four, like not he's never going to be, I don't think, a just a, a disruptor, a guy who wreaks havoc around the rim. But if he can be dependable be to make the right rotations, like I wonder if that's a, a scenario where, where you could see Collins be a, a little more aggressive on defense because they don't need him at the rim quite as much. I think in, in terms of the mobility and sliding his feet, there were flashes where we saw that and, and particularly the end of the double overtime Knicks game and the double overtime Charlotte game. He had stops. I had, one of them was on was on Devontae Graham. I can't remember who was who the, the Knicks Um, play was against but where he he switched out onto point guards and slid his feet and contained them and forced a really difficult kind of fadeaway floater toward the end of of it was either the fourth quarter or overtime or whatever it was Um, but you saw some some clutch defensive moments from him sliding his feet in space you know off of switches and staying in front of the ball I think that's encouraging it's a matter of doing that more consistently um, because you know guys tend to lock in a little bit more in those late game situations and so you'd want him to be able to show that a little bit more again we just we just didn't really see him in a switching scheme very often this season and, and and again that kind of traces back to what we were talking about with capella on the last episode where if if trey's the guy who's whose man is receiving the screen it's just really hard to switch no matter who the big guy is because yep. then trey is against you know he, he's going to get posted up by a, a presumably a center um and at best a power forward and then you know there are ways to kind of scram out of that and and mitigate that mismatch but it's harder it just puts more pressure on you you're in rotation it puts more you it makes your defense have to scramble a little bit more and so it's hard to run a switching scheme with trey young you know as your point guard it's hard to run any defensive scheme with trey young as your point guard and do it effectively but that that in particular it just leaves you vulnerable to to really bad mismatches inside so even if collins were a great switch defender and again we didn't really get to see it but even if he were, I think it would still be hard to use him in that capacity a lot of the time because of who else was on the floor. And that's where I think seeing, you know, guys like Reddish and Hunter really solidify as perimeter defenders. Maybe Trey takes a step forward. But but even even if he doesn't, you know, bringing in Capella, bringing in veteran X who can slot in on the wing or at power forward and help you out there, just having more competent offenders on the floor. I think could really take a lot of responsibility off of his shoulders um, and maybe make things a little bit easier for him, a little bit simpler for him, both on switches in space and, you know, kind of protecting the rim and making reads from the backside.
0: Yeah. They could use another guy. You know, it, it, it might be Hunter for the most part, but they could use another player on this roster that can play the four um in a I agree more of a high. I mean, because think about who played the four behind John Collins this year. It was Jabari Parker. It was Vince Carter. Um it was a little bit of Deanre Hunter, but like there and I mean there's a little bit of Bruno Fernando in there who is not a four in the NBA by any means. He's a center. So they, they and really in two years they have not had a guy that could come in and play the four with Collins at the five. You know, Hunter is the closest thing they've had and Hunter might be there, but Hunter was still a rookie this year who was who's really never played the four in that particular way. So if you in those lineups where the Hawks are and they're always gonna do this, even even when Capella's healthy and established at some point in every game, John Collins will play center, and it might be your closing lineup. Even if you find that, if you find if you find that that perfect match matching and it works out, but they could use another guy who can play the four, both without Collins and with Collins. That would be a useful addition to the roster. Um, not sure who that guy is, but it would be uh, very useful if they could pull that together.
1: Um, I, I agree. I was thinking that same thing kind of earlier, and as we were talking, Mo Harkless is a guy we've we've talked about yep. just. Intermittently, I think he'd be an awesome fit there. That type of player, you know, he really—I—I—I'd I have a hard time thinking of a better fit, at least for that sort of price range, than him. I think he'd fit really nicely on this team. But then again, he'd fit nicely on a lot of teams. I will note, like, the lineup of of with Collins at center and Herder, Reddish, Hunter, and Young also on the floor was pretty good this year. It was. They were plus ten point seven. Per 100 net rating that's per cleaning the glass with a 121 offensive rating and you know i think we know that's going to be a good offensive unit i don't know that 121 is is going to be the the standard for them uh, <laughs> but they could they could be around that range like that could be a really really explosive offensive unit especially if you know reddish kind of levels out in the mid 30s from three if hunter kind of takes a step forward is is you know mid to high 30s and then herter is is that that 40 percent shooter that he that he has been striving to be for the last couple seasons the question is, is the defense and, and, you know, they weren't amazing on defense with that unit on the floor, but relative to the rest of the team, one ten and a half and a half defensive rating is, is better, really it's, not it's bad. Better, it's better than the it's better than the normal baseline. Yeah. yeah. And especially if you're going to be that good on offense, you don't need to be this amazing defense because there is a trade-off. If you're going to be amazing on offense, a lot of the time, you know, that requires playing offense. You know, kind of offensively skewed players who aren't as good on defense. So you're you're making a trade off there. Um, but if that group can be 110, 109, 108 points per 100 possessions on defense, I think they're in a really good spot. And, and maybe they, they, that gets exposed a little bit more in a, a playoff setting if they get to a second round or a conference finals sometime in the future. But if you're talking about making the playoffs and and being a, a 40, 50 win team for the next you know sometime in the next five to six years. That unit with, with I think with their offensive baseline if they can be around that range on defense that they were this year That that's a pretty good spot to be in and to me Collins deserves a lot of credit for that unit being as good as it was Reddish does too and you know hunter had his moments as well, but that's that's not like a, a group of defensive stalwarts by any means and and I think as a You know, that I don't think it's a coincidence that most of their minutes Kind of came down the stretch of the season They they played more and more together as the the year went on eventually toward the last game uh, that kind of coincided with Collins coming on and, and kind of taking steps forward as a de- as a defender as well. Um, and I think those two things are certainly intertwined the success of that group on defense and Collins's own steps forward. Uh, and I'm curious to see both what steps he can take next year. And how that group progresses, and then you add in a capella a dead man a little bit more frequently, maybe an, another a free agent like we've been talking about. how does that change the mix and you know what what does that do in terms of taking responsibility and pressure off of other defenders?
0: yeah, that's well that's well said. I mean, and we'll bring it back to Collins now before we get out of here, but yeah, I think you know all the things that we've said before, I'm not sure that anyone, literally anyone could be. Um, that you could su- the, the you could assume anyone could replicate his efficiency number from this year, just because, because no one does that, basically, um, including the, the best players in the league. That's how good he was off, uh, offensively. But, uh, you know, if we assume somewhere in the middle of the last two years offensively, um, and maybe, you know, at worst, year three defense from John Collins, like you're talking about a guy who... Um, is definitely underrated in the league still at this point in time. The contract stuff, we can do at a later date. I purposely didn't want to do a ton about that right now because it's not what we're doing on this podcast. But i will be interesting to see how the Hawks approach that. I think... If your worst-case scenario is being able to match any offer next summer, that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but we'll we'll come back to that at a later date when it um, is a little bit closer because that's kind of been the focus for everybody. So I want to keep this more on basketball because he's still on the team right now, and I think he'll still be on the team. If you're asking me to predict if he's going to be on the team next year, I'll tell you yes, despite any—I mean, I guess there's this notion out there that the Hawks could trade him. I guess they could. It would it would surprise me pretty greatly if they did, um, just because of the PR problem that would be created if you try to trade Jack Lawrence right now. Given all the things that we've said for the last half hour about John Collins being so good, um, it's a really hard sell to trade him right now, even with the contract stuff. So uh, I'm assuming he's going to be on the team. And uh, we did a good job, I think, breaking down his basketball wares. But uh, in short, to bring it all full circle, then he's good at basketball.
1: He's a good player. He's a good player. And uh, yeah, I think that's analysis right there. Just to sort of piggyback on on the point of whether he's going to be on the team. I think that's another one where it's it's again, you can't blame people for not watching the Hawks, but. You know, That's one where it's it sort of once the Capella trade happened, it was almost like, oh, OK, like John Collins is probably gone because, you know, he doesn't space the floor and he's not good on defense. I, you know, like we said, those are going to be two really key areas for him. We're going to have to see how they how they progress and how they sustain. But the version of John Collins that we saw in the last 20 games of the season can absolutely fit with Clint Capella. He can fit with with almost anyone. You know, like I said, just the versatility, the the way he can affect the game. Um, he, he just does it in a lot of different ways and he can fit next to a lot of different players. The question is going to be, okay, yes, he can shoot the three, like he can space the floor. Is that the best use of John Collins? Are you getting the most out of him? And the answer is probably no, but there's probably enough time in the game where he can also be a role man, which is when he's at his best. And so I think you can make that work. Um, if he sustains the, that, that three point shooting in the defense, I, I think there's no question that, that he and Capella can be a, a long term duo, maybe, maybe the Hawks will be better with one on the floor and not the other. I don't know which, which one it would be. It's hard to project that far in advance anyway, but um, I, I think, I think maybe people were a little too quick, maybe myself included, to be honest, uh, a little too quick to maybe write off that pairing as, as just a, uh, you know, two incongruous parts that can't really fit together. I, I think there's potential there for them to really mesh nicely.
0: Yeah. I think it, I think it was fair to think about it and um, assign it as not ideal. Because I think that's still true, but not ideal does not mean can't work. That's kind of where I land on it, and I think that's where I land on it pretty quickly, just to say, like, these are two good, these are two very good basketball players. You can also stagger them. They can work together. As, as soon as Collins kind of proved that he can shoot the ball, that's the biggest thing for me in that pairing, frankly. I mean, the, the defensive side, too, is important, but um, once it's became, and I think it is proven at this point, that Collins is at least an average or better three-point shooter, that's a huge dynamic to add to everything that the Hawks are asking him to do as a power forward offensively. So yeah, I think it's going to work pretty well. I'll be interested to see how it works and uh, I think he'll be around to see it. And it's kind of funny to me to see Collins uh, in, I would say mostly in non-Atlanta circles treated like Torian Prince in some ways. Let me explain that. Um, Last summer and I was probably the loudest person or one of the last people saying um, the Hawks, are going to and and need to trade Torian Prince right now uh, a year before his free agency because they didn't want to pay him, and I knew they didn't want to pay him, and I wouldn't have wanted to pay him either. Um, and because they did it, I think people are having that same mindset again with John Collins, which is just silly because they're not in all um, congruous as players. John Collins is leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds better than Torian Prince. But it's the same situation in some respects in that you know, there's this built-in thing now where you have to consider trading a guy year ahead if he's not, like, a no-brainer max guy or something like that. And it's like, no, like, you don't have to do that right now, especially with Collins in that I think you know what you have, whereas with Torian, there was a lot of uncertainty. You know John Collins is very, very good at basketball, and cap-wise, you have some incentive to not pay him now because of the his low cap hold, etc. And again, we're not going to go too, too deep into that, but it's just, it's kind of funny to me to use this, like, very, I'm trying, not, I'm trying not to say lazy, but it's it's this notion that you have to trade a guy a year ahead of time if you're not a hundred percent sure you want to pay him, and it's like no, you don't have to do that now, especially with a guy this good. Because again, if you try if you try to trade John Collins for, you know, eight, like one first round pick right now, you would get skewered. Like the PR would be so bad in that that even if you wanted to, you probably wouldn't. So it's just like just hold on to the guy see what, see what it looks like and uh you have match rights and they're very valuable
1: that's the thing is you can match any deal that he's offered so you know maybe maybe there's a certain point at which you feel uncomfortable matching but you at least have that ability and so it really And if, if you
0: had a match deal that's that you, that you didn't love at that level like if if you're the Hawks and you think John Collins is a $25 million a year player and he gets offered $28 million You can just match it, and if you don't want to keep him, you can trade him a year later. Like you don't have to. This is not someone who's suddenly going to fall off a cliff and be terrible. Like he's pretty much proven to be a very good player. You could. There there are degrees of that, but it's not like the Tim Roy Junior situation where they they let a guy walk, and it, it was because they literally got blown away by an offer that anyone in the world thought was insane, except for the Knicks. So, it happens a lot with the Knicks. Well, it, it, it does, but it's kind of funny that like, that's that's one of the only situations in the last two or three years in the entire NBA in which a guy has been let walk by a team on, yeah. on an offer sheet. No, normally, offer sheets are at least within the range of reasonable outcomes, and if that's the case, teams usually very, 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 very usually match it, because even if they don't love it, they know that keeping a guy and slightly overpaying him is probably better than letting him go for nothing. Um. So that if that's your worst case scenario with John Collins, is that he gets paid two million dollars a year extra that you didn't, didn't want to pay him, that's not so bad.
1: And and what else are you going to do with the money? Correct. You know, for a lot of teams, it's it's like okay, we could let this guy walk. This is too, you know, too much for us to feel comfortable paying him. But you know, usually at that point in free agency, especially, it's like okay, who else are you going to get for that money? Or like. Otherwise, you're probably just going to sit on it and roll it over for the next year. And, and then maybe you sign a guy midseason or make a trade. Maybe you have it for trades. You can take on a larger salary. But a lot of the time it's just, yeah, you can trade him. You, you can pay him. And then, like you said, if you if you feel like you need to, you can trade him eventually. Um, just to put a sort of a finer point on what we were talking about earlier with Collins offense and the steps that, that he could take there. I think one specific thing I'd like to see him do next season is is get better attacking closeouts. We didn't see a lot of that this year. I think that's especially if the jumper really comes around and he gets paid more attention and more respect as a shooter. He could be a really, really explosive guy, just, you know, giving a pump fake, taking two dribbles and getting the basket. We didn't like I said, most of his his baskets were right off the catch, you know, just catch and dunk, catch and shoot, catch and float or whatever it is. Um, I, I could see him turning into a guy that you know he's never going to be a, a pick and roll facilitator off the dribble, isolation, break you down type of guy. But you know just blowing past a defender taking a dribble or two making a good decision whether it's a pass or you know using his athleticism to finish at the rim which kind of dovetails with the other part of it which is being able to to pass the ball he's good at moving the ball right now but you know like the the two dribbles and a good decision thing I just mentioned just being able to put the ball on the deck find the open guy once the defense rotates to you he's not quite there yet and if he adds those two layers to the game really like the those are the last two things kind of missing from his game right now is just the, the ball handling and the passing. And we've seen flashes at times of both, but it's just the consistency of it. And, and maybe he never gets there. He'd still be a really good offensive player if he doesn't. Uh, but the, I think those are two specific things that, that he can sort of add into his game next season. And I think now that he has the reputation that he that he does or that he should going into next year, those those things might even be easier to add because the rest of his game is so much of a threat.
0: Yeah, I uh I could not have said that any better and um yeah, I mean it, to kind of close this thing up as we've gone long as we probably will do on on all, on all of these. Um it would not surprise me and it shouldn't surprise anybody else if John Collins is an All-Star next season. Cuz if he if he does if he does what he did this year and the Hawks are better than embarrassing, he might he might be joining Trae Young in the All-Star game next year. That that's how good he has been. Recently, so yeah, I mean,
1: it'll it'll depend on Siakam and Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and those guys, but he, but I mean, for instance, I could see him being in that that sort of maybe not quite that class of player, but but around there, you know, like the, there's there. are some good players I mean, in the East, but he could be there.
0: Yeah, I think he can get near there. I mean, I I'm not saying that he that you would rather have him than some of those guys that you mentioned, but for instance, you know, Demonis was an All Star last year, and I, I'm not sure Demonis is better than John Collins um, even now. So it's it's interesting to me. So. I'm not saying that I'm gonna go to the go to some online bookie right now and bet for, and bet on John Collins making the author team next season, but it's just kind of a a good point of context to say that you know if Collins replicates what he was able to do in his 41 games this year and translates that to next year, um, and averages what he averaged and does what he's been able to do, and the Hawks are a little bit better, you're going to hear his name. It's going to be <laughs> even nationally. I think people will will finally start figuring it out um, because he. I mean, I, I assume. Won't have a suspension to open the season.
1: (laughs) Um, You would hope not.
0: Which was probably the biggest thing that cost him some more exposure this year was just the fact that he was suspended in a high profile fashion. So, anyway, and and didn't
1: he miss the first 19 games of the 2018 or 2019 season too?
0: Yeah, he had an ankle um, and missed a bunch of times. So yeah, I mean, he's only had really one injury, but it was it was uh, it was ill timed um, two years ago, and then. He was healthy after that, but then this year he didn't have any injury really, but just missed those suspension suspension. games. I I think he missed one injury.
1: You could argue maybe he he could have been a fringe all-star in each of the last two seasons. I don't know that I would argue that. No, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't have either.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have either, but there were people who I don't think are are silly by any means that said, you know, if Collins didn't have the injury in his second season, he would have at least been getting the buzz because, you know, if you look at the numbers— you know, if you average twenty-one and ten, like for instance, this year he averaged almost twenty-two points and ten rebounds a game. If you just took those numbers at the all, if that was if that was just the pre All Star break numbers with his efficiency, you better believe he would, he would have been in every discussion for the All Star game. Would would he have made it? Maybe not because of the because of the team being so bad, etc. But he would have been on every short list. Yeah. Every I mean, like
1: I, I mean I read that list earlier: Jokic, Giannis, Towns, Embiid, and Collins. And and again, to be clear, like. He's not as good as those. He's guys, not for sure, and there are, there are gradations here. Like just because yes. you average twenty and ten does not necessarily put you in that class. But just ask, ask
0: Julius Randle, who averaged
1: like, right, right. like nineteen <laughs> but, and nine. It is not nearly as good as these guys. But yes. But I don't think it's insignificant that he's oh. one of those five players. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that you know he just happens to show up on that list, which is full of All NBA, arguably MVP caliber players so well, and, and for me yeah, it's it,
0: important it's, to point out that you know it's not just the counting stats like there are right. situations like like for instance Julius Randall is a good example of this then I'm not trying to crap on Julius Randall but 20 and 10 are arbitrary endpoints but if you if you can combine that that kind of production which is obviously impressive in its own right with elite level there's no other way to describe this, elite level efficiency that 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 is what puts it over the top for me. This is not a guy who is, you know, getting his own is Moses Maloney and getting getting his own offensive rebounds and just like batting the ball to the rim. This is someone who is a you know extremely extremely high level play finisher. It's just it's not just that it's not just the raw box score numbers for me. He's he he has everything you'd want um, statistically offensively anyway. So, yeah. He's also
1: a guy I could just because of the way he plays, I could see him. If you're talking about All Star consideration, I could see him being pretty popular in the fan vote. Just because he he's gonna have a ton of highlights, he gets all the these huge dunks. He plays with Trey Young. Like they could, they could I could easily see that the 2020, 2021 Trey Young, John Collins, Alley Oop highlight reel, you know, posted on YouTube. Like there's gonna be a lot of those. So I I could see him kind of if you talk about the national buzz, kind of the the spotlight and and the conversation around him. It's I mean again, it's he's gonna have to actually play a full season. Uh, but I could see just the the style of play that he has. I could see him being like a, a pretty Becoming a fairly well-known player just because he's super exciting.
0: And they have to win. That's the other big thing about right, this. They, yeah. ha- they have to come out and actually be competitive. And, and that's Ryan another Johnson. thing
1: that separates him from Jokic, Embiid, Giannis. I guess not really Towns, but, you know, it's... Uh, Towns, that, Towns, Towns numbers kind of...
0: were... Uh, Towns, from the moment he stepped foot in the NBA, was basically just
1: doing absurd things. Like... Oh, my God. He, he was like the Steph Curry of big men this year. I, I really wish we'd gotten to see him... him play more games than he did. He was, it seemed like he was injured the whole year, but like the first half of the year, it was unbelievable. Just the, like we'd never seen anything like it. It was, it was, I mean kind of a a light version of what Steph Curry did in 2016. And you know, I, I, I don't say that lightly. It was, it was just the, the three point shooting, the efficiency, the versatility, like all of it was just completely unprecedented. And and by the way, you know, thoughts to, to town's mom, who was apparently in rough shape. Um, with the coronavirus or you know want yeah. to acknowledge that as well but yeah he's i mean he he was having a ridiculous season i wish we'd gotten to see him you know have have more healthy games under his belt
0: yeah it's a good point and uh yeah collins i know he's not necessarily seeing it on those on that level just yet but uh if he, if he does what he did if he does what he, what he did this year again uh i can't help but think he's gonna get some more uh notoriety and he should so uh ben unless you have any final thoughts uh i think we could probably wrap it up uh
1: yeah i guess that my my kind of lingering question would just be like, it's, it's something I've, I've written about a lot over the last month is, is just that, that five man group of, of young Herder Reddish Hunter and Collins. And we'll talk about those other four guys eventually, but you know, Collins is kind of the, the young is obviously the engine of that group, but Collins is almost the, the kind of skeleton key that sort of unlocks a lot and, and kind of gives that, that lineup its shape in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I'm really curious just how that sustains and, and what role he plays in its success or failure uh, next season I I could see that being a really explosive offensive unit like we talked about I could also see it having certain defensive limitations that prevent it from being your your kind of go-to lineup so just the the viability of that group in the long term especially because it's their five kind of core young guys as Lloyd, Lloyd Pierce likes to call them um, I'm really curious just to see you know can you build that can you sustain that type of lineup around John Collins with him as your as your centerpiece there
0: yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how that lineup uh, looks because it played so well. This year was kind of the only lineup that played well for the Hawks uh, on the whole. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, we've covered lots of ground here, as we uh, have on the on the previous podcast as well. And uh, as a reminder, Ben and I will be back to do three more of these on the different positions. Uh, two on the wings and then uh, one on the point guards, probably to end this thing up with Troy Young and et cetera, et cetera. But Ben, please plug yourself. You have... Uh, You've been prolific in the off season, or maybe not off season, whatever this whatever this hiatus is. You've been prolific. And I don't know what part of the year we're in, man. Me either. I'm with you, but uh, please plug yourself, man.
1: Uh, yeah, si.com com slash nba slash hawks. Uh, doing a lot of, I'm I'm virtually treating the season as though it's over at this point. It's, Same. It's just, I'm kind of taking a pessimistic attitude toward this whole coronavirus crisis. Um, so I'm I'm kind of you know acting as though it'd be great if the season came back, but I'm I'm kind of treating it like it's. Done with so i'm doing a lot of season review writing just sort of broad takeaways started an individual player review series today actually with with travion graham so you can check that out um and then you know maybe running features on certain players just kind of spinning things forward to next season and and breaking down maybe some of the key guys games like i mentioned i did a, a piece on collins last week um that got pretty in depth just about the strides he made on both ends of the floor the the offensive versatility kind of what he unlocks for this team and then some of the lingering questions moving forward with him. Um, and then, yeah, the Read and React NBA podcast. We've been on on a hiatus for the last little while, much like the uh, NBA itself, uh, partially because my co-host may or may not have uh, COVID-19. So we're still waiting to hear about that. Um, but but yeah, we, we should be back with an episode sometime in the next few days with that, just for more general NBA talk. If you're not tired of hearing my voice already, you can listen to that. So <laughs> Outside of that, uh, that's about all I got until next time I talk to you on this, uh, on this show,
0: follow Ben, uh, follow me. If you'd like to please subscribe to this podcast and yeah, we'll be back again. I'm not sure when, maybe, maybe we'll do once a week, one of these a week or so. I'm not, I'm not going to just make Ben come up, come back every once in a while. Um, yeah,
1: I have so much free time now that the season's over. It's, it's literally not a hassle.
0: We'll try to intermingle other things some draft content or I don't know, something else, but, uh, Ben, we'll be back very soon with part three, four, and five eventually. And uh, thank you, sir, for joining me. As for everybody else, we'll see you next time.